It's not about can we do it, it was more about how we do it. I always expected people to say no. And then when someone said yes, I was like, what? <laughs> Actually, you want to do this? <laughs> I just had to keep putting one foot in front of the other. The whole world is like, what exactly have you smoked again? This is The Raise, where we take you behind the scenes into the capital raising journeys of startup founders. Some you may have heard of, others you need to hear about, and all of whom have been through it to close a raise. On the show, you'll learn how founders make the difficult decisions. Whether you're a founder yourself or you're simply interested in the fast-moving, innovative world of startups, this show is for you. I'm your host, Mylin Dang. I'm Managing Director of Capital Raising Law Firm, Metis Law. For over a decade, I've worked with founders to raise capital so they can build businesses that make a lasting impact. Hello, founders and friends. Today on The Raise, we're back with our intrepid entrepreneur, Josh Rogers, founder and CEO of Mintrust, the DeFi lending protocol that is shaking up decentralized finance. In the last two episodes, he entertained and educated us about the anatomy of a startup. If you haven't listened to the first installments, I highly recommend you do that first. Josh shares many pearls of wisdom, including how he built a team of industry heavyweights specifically to help Mintrust raise capital, how he found the right investors and has them powerfully support his startup, plus a sprinkling of heartfelt insights into what it personally takes to be a successful founder of a startup. In this third and final installment, Josh shares the next part of his journey, It's an extraordinary backstage pass into a unique fundraising methodology where in a rapidly falling market, he was still able to deliver an incredibly successful result for his startup and its half a billion dollar valuation. Let's dive in. Josh, welcome back. Thanks so much, Mylene. And as always, it's a complete delight to be here. Now, before I congratulate you on your latest raise, I'd actually like to congratulate you on getting engaged. Oh, thank you. (laughs) I am delighted for you, Josh. (laughs) It's such an extraordinary thing when at a personal level, I think I had kind of given up that I would ever meet that one person that you could just completely and utterly fall in love with and who would actually just completely and utterly fall in love with you. And in a way that is intimate and special and truly unique. And I actually rang a friend of mine who I get coaching from. Uh, He's a business coach in Australia and a good friend of 25 years. And I said to him, I said to Joe, look, I just don't think I'm ever going to find that person. And I'm really sad and I'm really disappointed about that. And he said, Josh, you might actually need to confront that that's actually so. And I came to Estonia and David Allenjohn, who I spoke about in the previous part, who's also at my CFO, I went around to his place for dinner and he invited Maria and literally I met her. And it's just been the most beautiful, extraordinary thing I've ever been involved in, most wonderful relationship. And but the quick background story is that <laughs> Maria came to my house for dinner with David and Melina, his wife. Then I invited her over for dinner again, just with by her, and we had this lovely evening, and she went home, and then I invited her over one more time, and it was on a Friday night, and I was going to Dubai for six weeks, and I was taking the entire team. This is during the whole COVID thing. This is when we were building the whole foundation of the business out, and Maria stayed over that night, and what happened was I said, look, I want you to come to Dubai. 
she's a music teacher and she was teaching remotely at that time. And she said, look, I'm not sure I can. I need to have a piano for my work. So I flew to Dubai and on Saturday, on Sunday, I bought a piano. I rang her and said, you know, electric piano, not like a grand piano. Right. <laughs> on Sunday, I rang her and said, look, there's a piano in the apartment, come. And so she went and got her PCR test and was, I think, in Dubai on Tuesday. And we haven't spent a night. That was in March last year. And we have not spent a single night apart since. She never and, left. And it's just the most beautiful, beautiful relationship. And I just completely adore her. So, yes, we're getting married and we're getting married in January next year. Awesome. I am so happy for you and I love that story, Josh, and his big gestures of love. I love it. So congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> By the way, it's worth speaking about this just briefly. So when it comes to fundraising and it comes to startups, what people don't recognise is your partner's in it and people don't really appreciate that it's not just your personal ride because of the impact that building something out from scratch has on your relationship. I kind of have a flippant way I describe this to people, which is where I say, look, if you want to build a startup, you need to go home and sit down with your partner and say, look, there's a very good chance our relationship's going to be in trouble in the next five years. You want to ring all mm -hmm. your friends and tell them you're never going to be speaking to them again. Probably going to have like the local bottle shop on auto dial. So you need to also <laughs> think about maybe some sort of support for, uh, you know, alcohol abuse and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, at the end of all of that, okay, now you're ready. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Com completely and, uh, agree. We hear those <laughs> stories all the time. So you've got a great partner in crime. On this journey. Well, well, I have to say that my ability to work and perform at the level I do is a complete function of who Maria is in my life. And I think that that's a really, it's not an aspect that's spoken about a lot, but it really is a true partnership in any kind of founding relationship because what it takes is intense and you really do need just unrelenting support from your partner to be there in order to have you be your best version of you so that you can actually do what is needed to deliver. And I'm thrilled and I pinch myself literally every day because that's exactly what I have. Absolutely. Let's get down to business. So Minterest has closed its second round. Can you tell our audience how much you raised and what the valuation of Minterest is? Well, we've actually done three rounds. Oh, okay. What happened when I spoke to you last time is that we did another private round. Right. A small round of about $4 million, And really it was just a top up of the previous prior round to our, our other investors. And right. in crypto, moving towards launch, part of your play is that you're also now introducing investors who are social influencers who come and invest in the project and in doing so, then become advocates for the project. Now, you can actually roll out and just simply rack up uh, social influencers if you wish to, and, but we were very selective where we weren't looking to have a vast portfolio, what mattered to us was the credibility of those influencers because that went directly to our brand. Part of that second round included social influencers. Some of them are the best in the game. People like Credible Crypto and Box Mining, you're introducing those social influencers to your project. And that happened really over Christmas last year. And then what we've done since and have only just completed just last week, last week being mid-February, we've completed what's called a liquidity bootstrapping pool. And a liquidity bootstrapping pool is a mechanism or a framework which enables the protocol itself to become funded, to be bootstrap funded, and to be done so in a way that we believe is the fairest mechanism available in the sense that anybody can participate within certain limitations and people are able to participate at whatever level that they wish to. 
So these architectures are relatively complex. They run over a couple of days. And how a liquidity bootstrapping pool works is it's ostensibly a Dutch auction. So you set a price that's a high price. You have a clock that runs for two days. And if no one bids, the price falls. And if someone bids, the price goes back up. The pricing dynamic is completely set by the market. And it's a function of supply and demand. But these things are relatively complex. Because of their complexity, they tend to favor larger investors and professional investors. So one of the things that we did is that we actually created what we called a community allocation event. And the purpose of that, and I think, Mylin, you might have actually participated in that. I did, yes. So the, the purpose of that was that we would guarantee allocation to small investors up to a maximum of $500. And one of the issues for smaller investors is that through other kind of types of fundraising mechanisms that do occur in crypto, they struggle really to get allocation and they struggle really to get transparency on the pricing of actually the token. And also gas fees become a factor. And gas fees are a factor as well in LBPs. And that's one of the reasons why for small investors, it becomes an issue. So what we did is said, look, we'll guarantee you allocation. We'll guarantee you allocation up to $500. And we will guarantee you the average lowest price in the actual LBP. So the price you will pay at is the average lowest price. And the reason we did the average lowest price was because we wanted to ensure that the LBP couldn't be exploited in some way. The average price was calculated across the lowest million dollars of transactions that occurred. And pooling those funds into a wallet that then bought in the LBP, we removed gas fees entirely as a cost structure for our smaller investors. The intention with interest in doing that was not to raise money. About 2,000 people participated. It was about a million dollars. Okay, it's a million dollars, but from our perspective, that wasn't significant. It was a, definitely a contribution. The amount of effort that was required in order to create the community event was very significant and it wasn't warranted from a fundraising return perspective. But what it was about was about ensuring that all of Mintra's community could participate. And when you're building out platforms, what matters is the ecosystem and how do you look after everybody, not just large investors, but also the entire smaller community how do you do that in a way that's fair and how do you do that in a way that's credible and that has people pleased with that outcome? And that was really the intention of that design. That structure was incredibly interesting to me. So the community allocation event, the liquidity bootstrapping pool, and then, of course, you had an NFT lottery thrown in there to round out the activity. So in typical Josh Rogers fashion, nothing is done in half measure. Can you talk us through the NFT lottery? What we've done is we've minted 3,000 NFTs. And Mintrust NFTs are not just collectibles. They're not just very beautiful. What we've done is we base the images on the top 100 most influential people in blockchain ever. So number one is Satoshi. Number two is Vitalik from Ethereum. Number three is Gavin Wood, who was actually the CTO for Ethereum and is now the founder of Polkadot. And number four is Adam Back. Now, Adam is regarded quite significantly as probably being Satoshi, given his <laughs> incredible influence in the actual creation of Bitcoin. So we created this top 100, and what happens is each of those NFTs have a various degrees of rarity. So there are 12 levels of rarity. Number one being Satoshi only has one copy, where some of the NFTs on level 12 have 40 copies. And the point about this is, is that each level has a financial utility for users. So if you hold that NFT, it means that you get special benefits when using interest. And the way that we've designed those benefits is that we've ring-fenced them so they're non-predatory. 
So it means that you receiving those benefits doesn't impact anybody else in terms of their participation. But what happens in protocols like interest is that we incentivize use through what are called emissions, liquidity mining. So we give protocol gives its native token away to both lenders and to borrowers. And the NFTs give you a boost in those emissions. And that boost can, is between 20% to 50% increase in your emissions for up to three years. Now, if you're someone that supplies a million dollars in liquidity, that's interesting. If you're someone that supplies $10 million in liquidity, that's pretty interesting. And if you're someone who supplies $100 million in liquidity, that just became critical to The NFTs have a financial mechanism to them. And because they're an NFT, they're entirely tradable. So people earned those NFTs as rewards. They weren't sold. They were earned as a reward for participating in the LBP. And we've obviously done some lotteries with them where we've actually given them away as part of our marketing. Private investors have also received NFTs given their previous participation. And again, they're all as rewards. And what we expect will happen is that we'll be releasing more of those and we expect that they will show up on NFT marketplaces. And so people who want to come into interest will buy them. Now, the other thing that those NFTs do is they give you a VIP access card to what's called our private launch. So the protocol launches in two phases. Really, the private launch is almost like a beta. And the reason that people want access into that is that it's very limited, concentrated number of users with very, very high token emissions occurring. If you have access to the private launch, the financial rewards are going to be very, very significant, kind of super crazy high. And so we expect that buying of NFTs on marketplaces for people who earn those NFTs in the LBP will be frenetic. And then obviously that's great because that means that that's advertising the protocol. We're creating FOMO. There's a whole range of social marketing benefit that comes from that, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the strategy there. Very <laughs> clever. A, I've given you two really long answers so far. <laughs> very <laughs> but, very yeah. clever marketing. How much did you raise in total? And we raised, it was 5.4 million in the LBP. So the final price that was achieved in the LBP gave a fully diluted valuation of interest of more than half a billion dollars. Obviously, a half a billion dollar valuation prior to launch five weeks mm. out is pretty stunning. We only gave literally a small fraction of the circulating supply of the business away. We did that quite deliberately. The market is a very tough market. The platform that Mintrust used for its LBP, I think the six or seven prior LBPs to it were complete catastrophes. We had many people advising us not to do it, but there was an entire design as to how you put these things together so that people still will favour quality projects even in a tough bear market. This is a marketplace right now where most people would consider that boom model pricing is over. And what we believe is that the half a billion dollar valuation that the market has given Mintrust is a reflection of their belief in Mintrust's ability to dominate the DeFi lending space. I think it's fair enough to interpret that the market views that valuation is pretty much early days. Mm. So for the benefit of our audience, I'll just unpack that a little bit. So Mintrust's community allocation event was originally scheduled for December 21, but was delayed until February 2022, so sort of beginning of February. And so for context, seeing the crypto market starting to dive, and in particular Bitcoin, which had peaked at about 
US 60,000 in October 2021 was starting to go downwards and was still about 40,000 US in December, which was the original date of the community allocation event, and pretty much tanked below 40,000 early Feb, just about, just around about the time that the community allocation event went ahead, which, as you say, doesn't bode well for fundraising because timing's everything in fundraising, no matter what sort of fundraising you're doing, whether it's a traditional non-crypto private round or an IPO, you want to get the timing right. But of course, you guys decided to proceed with the raise, despite what was looking like the start of a bear market in crypto. Can you talk us through how you made that decision to continue with the raise? Before I do, if anyone who is listening here is a short seller uh, and you want to make a fortune in crypto, all you ever need to do is ring up stuff at Mintrust and say, look, when are you guys actually thinking about <laughs> doing a public fundraising again? And then you just simply sh- short Bitcoin <laughs> um, because uh, we do seem to pick it. <laughs> but, look, so what happened was that your strategy has to change and it does have to evolve. And the market was a very significant factor. In fundraising, ostensibly, you're standing on the edge of a cliff and you have to leap a chasm and you have a public event that has to work. And the cliff on which we were standing from our perspective was made of sand and was crumbling under our feet. And it was doing so rapidly on a daily basis. And so that meant a complete rethinking of how we supported the LBP and had it be effective. So what happened is I actually, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but I actually went to Thailand to get some sun. I was working in Thailand and we had this strategy where I would literally get on the phone to every single one of our investors, our private investors. There's a whole presentation around this, but also we had a very, very significant program where we were speaking directly with large liquidity providers, what are known as whales. And we spoke to a very significant number of those over three weeks. And I was due to fly back to Estonia, which is where we are based. And I opted to stay. In fact, my team told me to stay. I was, I was in like a, a, like a good hotel where I was safe. And I literally self-imposed isolation, not because I'm worried about Omicron. I get, I'm vaccinated. I'm, I'm everything. But I couldn't afford to have five days off in that lead up. It was very intense. We kind of pivoted in the strategy. The strategy, from my perspective, the marketing team ran a B2C strategy, and that was all to do with community allocation event. But what was going on in the background was a very intense B2B strategy, which is where I was talking directly to very significant number of investors in Wales and explaining to them the value in owning Mint during that private launch phase. So why were they interested? They were interested in the token because of its what is known as its staking rewards. When you lock that token in or when you register that token into Mintrust, you then become a beneficiary of its buyback. And how you build out platforms when you launch them is that you need to subsidize use. You need to incentivize use. Why would someone come to Mintrust on day one when there's no one there? Why would a lender lend when there's no borrowers actually creating an interest rate market? And why would someone borrow when there's no supply? That's the case for all platforms, whether it's eBay or whatever. And you need to be able to liquidity hack supply on. And how we do that inside of Mintrust is that there's a very, very significant number of tokens that are being issued as a bootstrapping reward to people who are early participants. And the reason for doing that is to draw liquidity into the protocol and bootstrap its activity. And eventually that subsidy is replaced by the protocol's own model where it becomes self-funding. What that means is that users who are 
there early who are staking these tokens and who are supplying liquidity are going to make very, very significant rewards, like unheard of. And what we needed to then do was to educate large liquidity suppliers about that opportunity, which is what we did. And then they stepped into the LBP and Bob's your uncle. How did you identify those liquidity providers? We've just got a really strong network. There's 150 people we spoke to in the first private round who Mm. we know. We're in the business. We understand who the large players are. But we also have access to people who are specialists actually in that, really who have access to a portfolio of whales. And then also there are actually pools or aggregated DAOs where you have an organization that's made up of 20, 30, 40, 50 people, each of whom are whales themselves. And they actually, as a group, appraise opportunities. So I did a lot of pitching to groups like that. Um, that, That's very impactful. And then just our existing advisory network is very, very connected as well. So it's quite – and then our existing investors understood the the proposal. And the first question I asked them is, who else do you know? It was a significant project, but that was required because of the landscape, the kind of this crumbling landscape that we were having to manage and how do you prop that up and – that was how that was done. It was a two-pronged strategy. There was always a B2B strategy. It's just that the B2B strategy went into overdrive. When we discussed this, you said that your team were quite instrumental in helping you make that decision to proceed with the raise. So one of the things in our culture, what my team called is J-bombs. So I, I throw J-bombs in the room. And I do that. Part of my role is strategic. So I'm constantly wanting to sharpen the strategy. And I had a very real concern about whether or not we could pull the LBP off successfully. I had a legitimate concern about it. And I went back to my team and I said, look, we need to confront this. The landscape is just completely collapsing underneath our feet. And should we cancel the LBP and just go and do a private raise? Because really what's at stake here is the actual future of the protocol. It's that significant. Now, I got rolled by my team and we have a culture where that happens because I'm just simply one voice. And what we're always wanting to do as a team is to come out with the best outcome. But really what was interesting was that dropping that question, like that position, actually had us really sharpen up and face that, hey, we're three weeks out and we must know before we even launch this thing that it's going to succeed. And we were not in that position, not because we hadn't done enormous work, but because the landscape was moving on us. So what happened is Kim Chattaverdi, he's our chief operating officer. Kim is a very, very intelligent man. He and I sat down. We'd made this commitment to our community. And the idea that I was going to go back to our community and break that commitment was something I was not comfortable with at all. But also, I was really facing an alternative called like, this is a really big funding failure. And we don't want to have that either. And which one is worse? And so what happened is Kim and I sat down and Kim was instrumental in this and redesigned like, or rethought through how we positioned the offering in a way that would become highly, highly attractive to whales. And then that became part of a significant kind of presentation I put together. And then it really became a program over that time. And what happened was almost instantaneously, the feedback that we got was pretty superb. It became clear that almost straight away, it was like, okay, Josh, the concern can go away now because as long as we run the program and we actually do the work for the next three weeks, we're going to be okay. And then we actually had some of the VCs themselves actually come back to us and say, look, we're going to take a position of this size. And that size was very significant. So they were willing to spend 
large amounts of money if they had to to get Satoshi, to get high-value NFTs because of the value they saw in those, and also to get access to those staking rights. But they weren't going to necessarily just spend the money willy-nilly. They were going to do it really within a kind of a, a certain pricing band. But what it meant from our perspective is that we knew the LBP would succeed even before it started. That was a great result. And what we did is we cut back the amount of circulating supply. We made it tighter in order to support that process, then gave the protocol the opportunity for fundraising to occur at a later stage if we wish to with that unspent token. Josh, will there be another round? And if so, can it be structured in the same way? The answer is we could do another liquidity bootstrapping pool. The answer is yes, we could do that. We may do other rounds, but the protocol's fully funded at this point, but it comes down to market sentiment as well. The issue is the regulatory framework. One of the things we like about a liquidity bootstrapping pool is that anybody really can participate. There are limitations. We geo-block restricted countries like North Korea and like things like Crimea. But when you're raising money from private investors, you don't have any of that regulatory restriction because they're professionals. And so you have much more flexibility in how you raise funds from private investors. I mentioned this in the blog I wrote on it, that Village of Supporters blog. We always wanted the protocol's development to be something that its entire community could contribute to. So we haven't taken any view or position on our fundraising or interest fundraising in the future. But the answer is, yeah, we could definitely run another liquidity bootstrapping pool for the protocol. And we could even do that post-launch when the token price actually has price discovery. There's certainly a range of options there for us. Josh, what's one thing that you've learned from this round that you can share with other founders? there's always an answer when you've got something that is coming at you how do you dodge a bullet and the answer is you can always dodge the bullet and if you don't react to that bullet you are going to die and that is just simply the nature of this I, i said this too in part one every startup is always at a break or breakthrough point well this is just another one and it really was a break or breakthrough in many ways we could have survived it but it was a really damaging potential event. And to be able to break through that and turn that around is very, very powerful. It's very, very powerful for the not just the protocol, but also for the team, because it, what it does is give substance and surety to people's own self-confidence and the team's ability to pull rabbits out of a hat no matter what, and not just do so in a way that is like survival, but actually in a way that truly does deliver a spectacular result. And the team has seen that happen multiple times now. And what was wonderful about the whole LBP process was the way the entire team lifted. So LBPs for us were also very valuable because they're a major product delivery piece. And the entire team literally gets to practice at delivering a major project right across every single aspect of the business. And that's incredibly valuable for people to be able to do that in a way where everybody lifted and really fulfilled what was needed prior to launch because it tells everybody, hey, the line is set. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the ability at which we operate is now set. This is the minimum bar and that's now set going into our launch. That's a very, very powerful place. At a cultural level, it's a very powerful place to be. You can always dodge the bullet. Josh, as always, it's tremendously informative and fun. Thank you. I'm very grateful for you. My real pleasure, Violet. Thank you so much. Well, there you have it. What can only be described as a comprehensive view inside the belly of a successful startup. 
No doubt Josh will be back at some point in the future to talk about the launch of Mintress, which is scheduled to take place in March. I, for one, cannot wait to hear about the next phase of this exciting and unique project. You've been listening to The Raise, a show that takes you behind the scenes into founder stories about capital raising. This podcast is brought to you by Termsheet Guru, a product from the expert team at Metis Law. Create kick-ass capital raising term sheets with Termsheet Guru and learn how to negotiate term sheets with confidence. To find out more, head to the website termsheet.guru. That's T-E-R-M-S-H-E-E-T dot G-U-R-U. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Raise, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Mylin Dang, and we'll be back next episode with another deep dive into a founder's capital raising story. Mm-hmm.